Hey, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors here at my church. And uh, I cracked up in the first, and I was humbled, I guess, in the first service. I opened up my Bible, and, and that was there. And it says, I love you with all my heart and soul. Love Susan. Susan is my wife. Um, and so I thought how sweet that was. And when she got here just now for the, for the she didn't come to the early service, she got here. I said, that note was so sweet. And she's like, I put that in there a month ago. <laughs> so, so that was a little humbling. Um, but we are, uh, anyway, we're in the, in the third week, I think, of a series we're calling Legacy. And I want to have a conversation this morning with you uh, today about change, about pivotal points in history that hang on, on one person's heart being changed. Does it really make a difference? You know, can this change uh, your, your relationships with your mama or your daddy or your son or your daughter? Or <clears throat> can it change your worldview? Can it change your politics or your perspectives on life? Can it maybe even change the trajectory of your family's life? And we're going to take a look this morning at Abraham. We're going to look at a prison guard. And we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and the decisions that, that they made when they got to the threshold where the wood met the carpet um, and, and maybe how those decisions played out. And as we walk through these stories, we're going we're gonna to go through a ton of Scripture. So buckle up and get ready because in some of that Scripture I'm going to read pretty quick to get to the point. But we're going we're gonna to run through a lot of, of Scripture. And first thing we need to do, though, is we need to back up about 4,000 years um, to a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a huge city on the Euphrates River in southern Iraq, about uh, what is now southern Iraq, about halfway between the head of the Persian Gulf and Baghdad. And Ur was a big city. It was a, a big religious center. It was a big business center. And uh, a guy named Abraham lived there at the height of that city's Splendor and the people that were th that lived there, they weren't Christians, they weren't Jews, they were really were pagans, they were idol worshippers, and their god was the god of the moon. I can't remember what the name of that god was, but it was the god of the moon. And Scripture tells us that Abraham's uh, father, Terah, had a big thrive. They were wealthy people, a thriving uh, idol making business because they were also idol. Abraham and his family and Terah. They were idol worshipers as well, and we, would, we, we can infer that Abraham was the heir to this family business, big family business. And if we look, fast forward a few years, we're going to come to Genesis chapter 12, and we believe that Abraham at this time was about 70 years old, and it starts in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, the Lord said to Abram, and, and at the beginning of Genesis uh, Abraham's name is Abram. God hadn't changed his name yet to Abraham. So here in chapter 12 it says, Abram, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in verse 4 of Genesis 12, it says, So Abraham went and did as the Lord told him. 
God said go, and Abraham went. It doesn't say they debated the issue. It doesn't say that they had a staff meeting and they wrote up a business plan. It doesn't say that Abraham, in fact, it doesn't even say that Abraham prayed about it or he fasted about it. It simply says, uh, your Bible says that God said jump, and Abraham said how high. And so you've got to ask yourself, why in the world would Abraham leave a killer business, family business that he was the heir to, a cushy life, to go somewhere that he didn't know anything about, to do something that he didn't know anything about with a bunch of people that he didn't know anything about. Who does that stuff? And we, we need to ask maybe even why would anybody do that? And this passage in Genesis 12, it doesn't tell us the answer to the why. It really doesn't even begin to tell us why. You've got to know that very often the Scripture is not going to tell you everything that you need to know right then and there on that page. A lot of times we open it up, we want the answer right then. But Scripture, a lot of times, reveals things gradually over time. We call that progressive revelation. And if we look in Genesis 15, chapter 15, we'll, we'll begin to see the answer to this why question that Abraham was facing. This, Genesis 15, is about 10 years after Abraham left Ur. He was about 70 when he left. Now he's about 80. And so... He's 80 years old. He's crying out to God. He says, you've given me no descendants. This is Genesis 15, starting in verse 3. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. And then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Now think about it. The joker's 80 years old. He says he doesn't have an heir, and God's telling him, no, no, you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And then the Lord took Abraham outside and he said to him, look up in the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. This is the verse you want to write down, 15.6. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now I want to park for a second on that word counted. It's an accounting term. It is a term that if you have a balance sheet and you got two columns, you got debits and credits, and they need to balance, and on the debit column is all the junk that you've done in your life. I lied, I stole, I committed adultery, I coveted, I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. I got a whole long laundry list of junk in that column, and there's nothing on the credit column. <clears throat> and this term, this term in Genesis 15 counted for, it is God moving in there with a pen and making one check mark on the credit side that balances everything that you have done. That is what that means in the Scripture when, that, uh, when the Lord credited him or counted him as righteous because of his faith. <clears throat> so we can say that, that Abraham had an encounter with the Lord. God said, go. Abraham believed him, and he went. Then some years later, God told Abraham, Um, that he was going to have a son, and Abraham believed him. And what did God do? God counted him as righteous or credited him with righteousness because of his faith, not because he went and did what God said to do. Now, is doing what you're supposed to do important? Of course it is. Is acting right important? Of course it is. Is behaving important? Uh, Of course it is. But there is no good that is good enough. Um, The bar is too high, and so there is no good that's good enough. And Abraham was saved not because of what he did, but because he believed. 
we're not saved by making promises or doing things for God. We're saved by believing God's promises to us. And so here is the rest of the story, at least the rest of Abraham's story. And it's a rest of the story that really reeks of God's sovereignty and that he does have a plan and has had a plan from the very beginning. So Abraham's long-promised son, the one that he never thought he was going to have, is Isaac. And Isaac's son is Jacob. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, his son, and his grandson in Genesis 15, really 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Now let's jump from Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, to the very first passage in the New Testament, the very first passage of the first book of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read it quickly, and so you're going to have to bear with me. It's 16 verses. I'm going to read it quickly because there's a point. The beginning of this, verse 1, the beginning of it is, is the point along with the very end of it is the point, but I've got I to read through it. This is the book. I've got to take a breath. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's 28 generations. We've got to get to 42. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Nabiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon, here's the point, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And it all started with Abraham crossing the threshold of, of belief in and on the Lord, and it just changes everything. So the point is Abraham to Christ. So sometimes, sometimes, unfortunately, it works out this way. A saved man, a man who has made Jesus the leader and forgiver of his life, sometimes this man goes to heaven alone. God's sovereign election has pluck this man from the middle of an ungodly family regardless of that man's prayers that man's wisdom that man's fasting regardless of all of that his family still remains far from God and lost way way more often however the God who is the God of Abraham becomes the God of Abraham's wife Sarah and becomes the God of Abraham's son Isaac and becomes the God of Abraham's grandson Jacob and I know that grace is not genetic and I know that it doesn't run in our blood somehow salvation doesn't somehow find its way 
uh, genetically from mama and daddy to son or daughter. Nevertheless, many times God, by means of one, just one person in a family, draws the rest of that family to himself. He calls an individual and then he uses that individual to lead the rest of the family to the threshold of the cross. So I want to jump to, uh, to the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, to the book of Acts. Late in chapter 16, we're going to find Paul, Paul who wrote about half of the New Testament. We're going to find Paul and Silas in jail. And I want to read you, this is chapter 16, starting in verse 25. <clears throat> about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself because he, th he had thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted to him, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights, he rushed in, and he fell trembling on the floor in front of Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his, his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to what? To believe in God, he and his whole household. So what did the jailer say to them? He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did they say? Did they say, you got to take the chains off us and let us out? You got to unlock all these doors and let us go? You know, let my people go? No, what, he asked them, what must I do to be saved? And their answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And they said a little more. They said, you and your household. Not that they had to do a little more to be saved, but they said a little more. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then they shared, Paul and Silas shared the gospel with him and his family, and they all were saved. And the text says the jailer was filled with joy. Remember, a, a saved man sometimes goes to heaven alone, but it's much, much, much more likely that the God of the jailer becomes the God of his wife, Betty Sue, and the God of his kids, little Bobby Joe and little Cindy Lou. Much more likely that that happens. And that all started with a prison guard crossing the threshold of faith in belief in and on the Lord. It just, it just changes everything. So let's look at Paul. And Paul's the guy that led these, the prison guard and his family uh, to the foot of the cross with the same gospel message that is preached from this stage every single Sunday morning. This Jesus with this same message that saved that jailer is still in business today and he's still doing the same thing. So let's look at Paul. And here's what we know about Paul. <clears throat> we know he was born, his name was Saul because the Lord hadn't changed his name yet, in southwest Asia Minor. He grew up steeped in Pharisaical Judaism. He was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees um, were the religious elite of the time of ancient Judaism of ancient Israel. They were also the ones with whom uh, Jesus was at odds with all the time. And so 
when, when Paul was 14 and his parents shipped him off from Tarsus in Asia Minor to Jerusalem to study under Rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel was considered one of the greatest rabbis of that time, sort of like the Billy Graham of ancient Judaism. And even today, uh, Gamaliel is considered by Judaism as one of the greatest rabbis that ever lived. And so we also know that Paul was a big-time persecutor of Christians. And so I want to read you, I want us to look at a little passage in Philippians that Paul wrote, and he wrote this about himself. It's Philippians chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 4, 5, or 5 and 6. It said, it's Paul writing about himself. I was circumcised when I was eight days old, and every Jewish male is circumcised at eight days, at eight days of age. Um, actually, it's because the blood clots at about eight days, and that's why they do it on day eight. And, uh, and it's called a bris, and the word in Hebrew means covenant, and so it's sort of the Jewish entry into that covenant people, Israel. So anyway, Paul says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So we know that Paul was a Pharisee and we know Paul that Paul persecuted the church. Chapter 7 and 8 in the book of Acts tells us that Paul was present when Stephen, Stephen was one of Jesus' guys, one of his 12, and, and when Jesus, in the summertime, Stephen was stoned to death. Acts, the book of Acts tells us that Paul was there and that Paul put his stamp of approval on it, that Paul was all over it, that Paul was leading the charge. So during the rest of that summer and that fall and moving into that winter, the Jewish authorities began a, a systematic suppression of all of these Jesus freaks. And Paul was the leader of that suppression. And he was authorized in the spring of that next year, Paul was, to go to Damascus and to completely raise Cain in Damascus. So in Acts chapter 9, we find Paul on the last day of the trip to Damascus, with his posse. Um, I don't know if they're on horses or donkeys or camels or whatever, but this is the last day of that trip, and this is Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Verse 1 of this passage is strong language. Verse 1 says that Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And what that tells me is that everything inside of Paul, his heart, his brain, his soul, his body, Everything he had was laser-focused on ending this Jesus movement. And then, bam, the Lord just comes and appears right in front of him, and he has this face-to-face on this Damascus road with a living God. Paul, in chapter 26, he recounts this, retells this story, um, and he's talking to Agrippa when he says this. 
This is uh, Acts 26, starting in verse 13. He said, about noon, he's telling this story. He says, about noon, your majesty, I was on the road, and a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Well, who are you, Lord, I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you. This is when Jeff last week talked about our purpose and, 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 and that the Lord has a purpose for us, and our legacy can be found in that. And so this is the Lord is telling Paul, and I wish that it, it happened this way for all of us, the Lord is telling Paul in this passage in Acts 26 exactly what his purpose is. So he says, And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Now get up to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me, and tell them what I will show you in the future, and I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by what? By faith in me. And the Lord, so the Lord spoke to Paul. Paul believed. Jesus saved him. By grace, through faith. How many times must Paul have said, you just think about Paul's life. His, his total focus was on wiping them out. So how, much, how many times do you reckon Paul must have said, you just don't know what I've done? So I, and I like the way the, the message paraphrases uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 15. It says, what I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but I act another way, doing the things that I absolutely despise. Every one of us does that. We do the stuff we know we shouldn't do, and then we can't do the stuff that we know we should do. And Jesus says, I'm not concerned with your past, and I do know every single thing that you've done. I'm not concerned about how good you are either. That's the other side of that coin. You do need forgiveness, and I've got really big, broad shoulders to lean on, and I was thinking about this last night, and this reminded me of two, three weeks ago. Um, we were downtown around 17th or 18th, streeting around in 3rd Avenue. There's a, we do some work with, we serve some uh, homeless people, and we were down there, and there's this old abandoned, big, but old abandoned, uh, some kind of plant. And there's a, a ledge, a loading dock, actually, that about 20 guys live on. And one of the guys that lives there, his name is Michael. And I call him Little Michael. He's about 60 years old, but he's about this tall, sweet old guy. And he, they call me Dog Man because all the Georgia stuff all over my Jeep, which cracks me up. But we're sitting there, and we're, we were, we're loving on them. We were praying with them. We were feeding them. We were, you know, providing some necessities. And we were all kind of probably about 35 people or so. We're all standing out there talking. And, and Michael kind of pulls me off to the side, and he said, Dog Man, come here. I need to talk to you. And so we went over there, and he said, I need forgiveness. He was so serious. He said, I need forgiveness. And I said, get in line, brother. You can get behind me. I need forgiveness too. He said, no, you just don't know what I've done. I said, well, Michael, I said, I'm not concerned with what you've done. I said, the Lord's not concerned with what you've done. He said, no, no, you just, you just don't know what I've done. I mean, we all do that same kind of thing. <clears throat> and I said, I understand you. I said, but Michael if you get yourself in a pit this deep, 
then the Lord can get a little deeper. And if you get a little deeper and nastier in something, he can get a little deeper than that. He said, yeah, but you just don't know. I mean, this went on for like 30, 40 minutes, and, I, and, and he said, but aren't I supposed to be good? And I said, yeah, Michael, you are supposed to be good. I said, but you can't be good enough. You can't be good enough to get it, and you can't be bad enough to lose it. I said, and God can get deeper. I don't care what you've done. The Lord is bigger than all of that. And I said, you just need to ask forgiveness. And he said, I want that kind of forgiveness. And I said, then let's sit and let's pray. And we prayed. And right there at about, it was probably 1130 at night, 11 o'clock at night, on a Wednesday night, I think it was, um, on that corner in that filth and, 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 and muck of that place where he lives, his eternity changed. That joker got saved right there in front of me. It was the coolest thing, one of the coolest things I think I've ever seen. And so... Um, God is just bigger than all of that, and he's bigger, he was bigger than that for Paul. Um, the verse we just read a minute ago in Acts 26, it said that God's people are set apart by faith in Jesus. Paul believed the Lord, Paul trusted in the Lord, Paul had faith in the Lord, and he was set apart by faith. And to use that Genesis Abraham sort of language, God credited Paul with righteousness on that Damascus road. So how does Paul's, the rest of Paul's life play out? What kind of legacy does Paul leave because of that encounter with the Lord? Paul was commissioned to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, which he did. And it's pretty much impossible to know how many uh, mission trips Paul went on, but it would be fair to say that his, his whole post-Damascus road, his post-saved life, was one long mission trip. Paul went on to write with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. His life is one of the very best examples of God reaching down uh, into time and taking a crazy jacked up guy and saving him and redeeming him uh, by amazing grace alone through faith alone. It really, really changes everything. Now, Today, the primary way that God speaks to us, and I'm not saying the only way, I'm saying the primary way is through His inerrant Word. And I've come to sort of understand that that Bible is not an exhaustive history of every event that's happened since the beginning of time. It never, that was never the intent of that Scripture. It's a redemptive history. It's a salvation history with the intent of leading you and I to saving faith. Now, I grew up, <clears throat> I want to tell you a little bit about my story. I grew up, and some of you may, may know this, but I grew up in a conservative Jewish home. We kept kosher, which is the, the, uh, the dietary laws in the book of Leviticus. Um, I went to uh, religious school on Tuesday afternoon, on Thursday afternoon, on Sunday morning. Uh, went to worship services on Friday night and on Saturday morning. So I was, I was in that synagogue uh, steeped in Judaism. Um, my mom and daddy instilled in me and my brother, I got an older brother and sister, a really, really strict sense of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and you better be the best and you got to do your, do the best and, <clears throat> and, and don't mess up because I'm going to tear your, your tail up. You know, you, you, it's all about what you do. You got you to gotta do good, you got to do good, you got to do good. And as a, that's the way we grew up. And uh, my dad went to West Point, and so everything was, uh, he ran a tight ship, probably the best way to say it. Um, and as a Jew, 
uh, Jesus and the New Testament just really weren't an issue. The new, we, Judaism doesn't consider the New Testament to be Scripture. Um, Jesus was just another prophet in a long line of, of prophets. And so it wasn't like negative. It just wasn't discussed and it just wasn't an issue. And I grew up thinking in my simple little head that if there was a heaven and I acted good enough the way my daddy said to act, then I'd end up there. I didn't ever thought about how good was good enough. Nobody ever asked me that question. Um, I thought everybody, and this is going to sound stupid, I thought everybody that wasn't Jewish was Christian. I didn't know what being saved meant. Saved from what? I mean, I had no earthly idea what that language even meant. All I really knew in my mind that if you were a Christian and, and, and you were a serial killer and you asked uh, for forgiveness that you'd be forgiven and all was okay. And, I, and, and to me that doesn't seem fair. And I hate that word fair now, but that's not fair. This dude killed a bunch of people and he just says I want forgiveness and God gives him forgiveness and he's a Christian. That just made no sense to me. <clears throat> so I got all that stuff in my head and, and Susan and I met in high school. She was a freshman and I was a junior and we started dating on November the 13th, 1981. I remember the day. And uh, seven years later, we were married in 1988. Zach, our oldest son, <coughs> excuse me, was born in 92, and then Will was born, our youngest son was born in 1995, and we just went on raising our children the best way we knew how, and it ended up just the same way that, that, that I was raised, and we're trying to teach them right from wrong and do's and don'ts, and, and, uh, and you got to do good, and you got to be the best, and don't mess up or I'll tear your tail up, and all of that kind of stuff. It was a mirror image of the way that I was raised when they were little. And then in January of 2001, which was 12, 13 years after we got married, I decided that I wanted to know what the truth was. I wanted to believe because I believed what was true, not because somebody told me what, what to believe. I think I even wanted to maybe to some twisted way in my brain prove that Jesus was not the Messiah and that Christianity was like, like some big conspiracy or some big deception to get everybody's money or something. I don't, I don't know how that was working in my brain, but I just knew that I was not ever going to believe any of this Jesus stuff. But I, just, I believed in God, and so I, I decided that I probably ought to start here on page one of the Old Testament, and the New Testament wasn't Scripture, so I was just reading the Old Testament, and every night I'd pick it up and I'd read for, I don't know, two hours probably. And I spent the next nine months reading every word of that Old Testament. And in September, when I finished it, I, I thought, there's no way that that is the end of the story. From, from uh, Genesis to Malachi, um, I thought, that this is the dumbest book ever if that's the end. There's no way that Tom Clancy is going to write a novel and throw the last chapter in the trash. But that's what I felt like when I finished the Old Testament. So I thought, I need to read the New Testament which I thought I was being a traitor by picking up a New Testament reading it, but I, I bought one, and I read it, and that was September, October, November. Finished reading the New, the New Testament sometime in November. And then I read a bunch of different other books by Lee Strobel and Ravi Zacharias, and, and if y'all have ever read The Case for Faith or The Case for Christ, awesome, awesome books. A bunch of other books, both sort of Jewish apologetics kind of books and Christian apologetics kind of books, trying to figure out all this stuff because I needed to believe what I believed in my head first. That's just the way God's wired me up, that I needed to know that all of the things in that Bible historically happened and that there's, I thought, 
if I could find one thing in here that was in error, the whole rest of it is going to collapse on itself. And so I was trying to find that one thing, but guess what? I couldn't find that one thing because every word in here is true. <clears throat> and I had this gradual buildup of belief in my head that, that finally culminated in a passionate conviction in my heart. And I finally understood that, uh, that Christianity was not what I thought it was, that God's grace is big enough for that serial killer. If it's big enough for me, it's not too small for that serial killer. If little Michael gets this deep, God's grace can get a little deeper. And it, it says that in Ephesians, it says that we are saved by grace through faith alone. It doesn't say uh, by grace through faith plus something else. Um, your Bible doesn't say that amazing grace, that amazing grace is only for the good people. It doesn't say that, you, well, you just don't know what I've done. It doesn't say that. Um, the word all, what did Paul say in Romans about us? All of us have sinned and fallen short. And all in the scripture means all. When you read your Bible and it says all, it doesn't mean some. If it says everybody, it doesn't mean somebody. It means everybody. And so Romans 10, 13 says that all who call upon in the name of the Lord will be saved. 800 years earlier, the prophet Joel said the same thing. He said, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it doesn't say everyone except Michael because you just don't know what he's done. What Jesus said is, I do know what you've done, and I'm not concerned with what you've done. And I'm not concerned with how good you've been. You do need forgiveness, and my shoulders are big enough to handle that. Um, and if you look back at the Old Testament narratives and the story of Israel, it is like this cycle of they mess up and God redeems them, buys them back, and they mess up again. A generation or so goes on. And at some point, and, and it really starts on page one of the scripture, but it's like God looked down and said, I gave you these commandments. In fact, I gave you 613 of these commandments to point you towards your need for me. Not... Uh, no one would be able to keep those 613 commandments. And so it's like the Lord said, I got this, and I'm going to take care of this. <clears throat> and it made me think, and I remember that day, thinking, oh, my gosh, I finally realized that it, all this law could not save me. All this law did was point me towards my need for a Savior by grace, through faith, not by obedience, through the law and so on this dark morning back in January of 02 I was driving to work thinking about Susan and Zach and Will and my parents and faith and the Bible and the Lord and I had realized right then that I believed every single word in that scripture that Christ really did die on a cross that three days later there really was a resurrection that all of that all of that was true do you believe that what you believe is really real. Either he died on the cross and was resurrected, or he didn't. It's one way or there's no middle ground to that. And it changes everything. It changes, it changed my worldview. It changed uh, relationships. It changes perspective. And it changes everything because he changes everything. When you cross that threshold of faith, he really does change everything. The trajectory of our family changed on that rainy morning. Christmas Eve that year, Susan and I got baptized together. Christmas Eve of 2002. Zach was saved in 2005. 
And on Father's Day that year, I had the awesome pleasure of baptizing him. And then a couple of years later, I got home from work and found Susan and Will sitting on the bed in a deep, deep conversation. And Will asked me why he did stuff he knew he shouldn't do, and he couldn't do stuff he knew he should do. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's straight out of Romans 7. And I said, it's because your mama ate the apple. And, and she immediately said back to me, it's because you weren't man enough to stop me. But, but no, seriously, he asked me that question, and I said, get in line, dude. We are, that is the whole point. None of us can be good enough. And about two and a half hours later, right there in our living room, Will made lead, uh, Jesus the leader and forgiver of his life and was sealed by the Holy Spirit for eternity. That happened in our living room. Uh, and then on Father's Day that year, I had the incredible pleasure of baptizing another one of my, my kids. And four years ago, my brother's youngest daughter, uh, Jenny, made Jesus the leader and forgiver of her life. And last year, my brother's son, Benji, uh, crossed the threshold of faith and was saved. And I recently read in a study that the chances, the odds of a child being saved increase 2,000% if a child's father is a Christian. So here is my challenge. What is the legacy that you're leaving? What is the trajectory of your family, your brother, your sister, your nieces, your nephews, you know, your mama, your daddy, your sons, your daughters? 150 years from now, what are your great-great-grandchildren? What are their lives going to look like? And so I'm asking you, if you have not yet taken that step of faith, are you willing today to cross that threshold? Are you willing to step across into, into God's graceful arms? And it changes everything because He changes everything. Remember, a saved man, a man who's made Jesus the leader and forgiver of his life, Sometimes that man goes to heaven alone. But way, way, way more often, the God who's the God of Abraham becomes the God of Sarah, who becomes the God of, of Isaac and becomes the God of Jacob. So y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today. We believe that you are <coughs> everything you say you are, that you can do everything that you say you can do. And Lord, we know that there is no pit so deep that you are not deeper still. <clears throat> Lord, we believe it with every fiber in our being. And Lord, so I, I would ask today that we would see steps of faith, that we would see men and women cross that threshold, that, uh, that they would stand up for you and for your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, thank you Ed. Yeah, man. Thank you, Ed. It is a uh, pleasure to have Ed on our staff team. Uh, for a lot of reasons, one of those is just the heritage that that uh, he has and that the legacy that he's passing on and uh, the story that you guys have, I think, is awesome. And uh, there's there's more to that story, and I hope in the future we can hear other aspects of what God's done in your life. I want to end this way today. Uh, we've been three weeks now talking about leaving leaving life. Uh, and, and looking at the legacies that we leave. And I think it's just that, that question that in my mind is answered really authentically by what steps, what spiritual steps are you willing to take? And for some of you today, maybe your next spiritual step is just a step of surrender. God, I, I, man, I've wrestled with 
complete surrender to you. Listening to Ed's story today and seeing how you work through through generation after generation and maybe my step of spiritual faith or surrender today would make such a difference in my life that that the things I hope for for my kids would be learned by not my words but my my actions and maybe you some maybe some of you today you're ready to take a spiritual step of just surrender and so in just a moment we're going to pray and I'm just going to pray offering up an op- opportunity for anybody to just to, to go ahead and say God I, I'm, I'm ready to go all in because you went all in for me and I think that the other side of that coin for many of you perhaps here today and it has been for many of you in the last several weeks maybe for 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 many of you here today your next spiritual step is that is that faith line crossing step to where you're saying Jesus because you gave your life for me and offered forgiveness I'm ready to to receive that as a gift of salvation and and God I'm ready to give you my heart today and maybe that's where you are at today so I'm going to close in a prayer and I'm going to ask our host teams to come on forward and I'm just going to offer this up as is is a prayer for surrender and a prayer for some of you today to, to cross the line into into forgiveness into into faith into freedom in Christ and I love this whole idea of legacy as being something that Jesus promised to us. He said, I'm coming to this world, basically, to give you life. And I love the verse where he shares, I'm offering you life abundant, full life, free life. For some of you today, you're ready to break free from the past and just take a big step into where God wants you to go. It's just up to us to make the choice today wherever that is for you. Let's pray. Lord, we, we take this moment and we say, God, you have done, we acknowledge you have done so much for us. You gave your life. You sacrificed it completely. You did so many things, God, that, that have led us to you. And God, I pray for those of us here today that need to either re-surrender or just completely go all in, surrendered, to you. God, I pray that that commitment is made right now. God, I'm surrendering to you. And Lord, I pray for many of us perhaps here today that would say, because of what he's done for me, I'm going to give my heart and life to him. And you would simply cry out to heaven and to God this morning saying, Jesus, I'm asking you to be the leader and forgiver of my life. Save me today. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. No longer an orphan, but a child of the Most High King. I'm giving you my life today. And Lord, we want to just acknowledge that none of us in this room have any hope or any future apart from you. So Jesus, today as a church, we say thanks. We say thank you for life in you. Lord, I pray you would rally us up together as a church to live beyond ourselves, to go after hardcore reaching every man, woman, and child in this city and abroad. So Lord, use these resources right now that we'll 
we'll give and surrender to you our time, our stuff, our money. God, use them to help people find their way back to you. In your precious name we pray. And everybody said together, amen.